His conversations always started the same way. A woman would get a message online stating, Can I tell you a secret? The person behind the message appeared to be a woman, signing it all off with a kiss. But they weren't a woman or an acquaintance, but a stranger. They were a 30-year-old man and their target would be one of at least 62 women. He would harass women online over an 11-year period, making him Britain's worst cyberstalker to date. 62 victims, 10 arrests and two restraining orders later, he will be brought to justice. This is the story of Matthew Hardy. I've got no curls today. I just this this year is already disaster. <laughs> Not to be dramatic, but this freaking day is already disaster. Like there's nothing to my hair. There's nothing. This bed is this cover is inside out. Listen, ignore it. It's sugar spice and everything else. First mic check of the year. We've been rusty. We've been out for a while, out and about, and we have obtained a power puff curls. PJs. All right, all right, listen, don't judge. Sugar Spice and everything nice. All of you have been raised on Cartoon Network, okay? Whether it was Dexter's Lab, whether it was Ed and Eddie, whether it was Courage the Cowardly Dog, if you are of the Courage and the Cowardly Dog, Courage the Cowardly Dog, <laughs> he was the Cowardly Dog, man. If you have sat through that cartoon, like you didn't skip it, you didn't just watch, you know, the other stuff, like Didi and Dexter and and, 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 and like other Cartoon Network stuff, if you have sat through it, comment below, because we are probably, have the same mind. I've also done a video on this channel, like a while back, about whether or not that was based on a true story. Spoiler alert! Might not have been, might have had a couple of discrepancies here and there. That is not what this mic check is about. Something that's been pondering on my noggin, right? So, you know, on Spotify, you get the Spotify wrapped, right? Like, if you're listening constantly, if you use the bloody app, but you get it beginning of December because the motherfuckers want a holiday, right? So, they don't want to send it the last week of December. That is probably a logical conclusion as to why you get it based off of the algorithm for 11 months of the year. So, my question to you is, during the months, during the month, of December, when it's free rain, it's the purge, it's the Hunger Games, you can listen to whatever the hell you want to listen to, it doesn't count towards the algorithm, because that would be fake, it wouldn't belong to the same year. What song slash songs have you been listening to? Has it been Glee? I suspect a lot of you have been listening to a lot of Glee. You suspect they're fruity, my, you suspect they... <laughs> they're of a certain generation, yes. Uh, Glee? Lonely Island. Lonely Island. One specific song in particular that is top tier, okay, better than all of the rest from Lonely Island, Mother Lover. It it has like material, it has the content for the choreo, it has the potential to be so much more. It's definitely not a fetish, definitely not me planning to like get with your mom. Okay, denial is the river in Egypt. Denial is a river in Egypt. Your husband is gay. Mic check over. We're proceeding with the case that I clearly am trying to postpone as much as possible because it's going grim. Your blood gonna boil. Your blood's gonna boil in about a second. So um, yeah, let's get on with that. And you let me know in the comments what song or songs or playlists you've been listening to when it doesn't count, when you know you can cheat and now you're like, mm, I have replayed this song about 50 times a day. Denial is truly the river in Egypt. All right, let's go. 
Detective unit, I like to come on here and before diving into the case, tell you how I learned about the story, right? And there's always a timestamp you can skip through, through all of that. However, here, before doing that, I actually wanted to loop you into a mental state that I had been going through this week when researching this case. It's not just like a random vlog update on my own mental state. It's mostly because I think it's not really spoken about. I have seen the article on the journalists that have covered this case for the Guardian podcast, and she had actually spoken about in this article just kind of how it affected her as well. So I thought I should do the same, because I believe when you are in deep into researching these types of cases, you kind of already know the profile of the person, in a way. You kind of understand the psychology of them, and um, I have had the privilege to research a couple of them. And just based off of the past actions, you don't even have to understand the psychology or to be a qualified professional to know that if the person in the past has proven to repeat the same pattern of behavior, who is to say that they will not do it again? And that's kind of what makes people like me, who like to research these types of cases and want to bring the story to the public, think every single time that they sit down to write a script, should I be doing this? Should I actually leave this one alone? Uh, it happened with Alex Belfield's case, it happened with Eddie A. Game, that one, I think, uh, he managed to um, appeal to YouTube or whatever and remove it for the UK grounds, so I think that video you can only watch in the US and abroad. But it had happened before where the type of behavior of the person is not to really suffer the full extent of the consequences, let's say that, not to really serve the full term of their sentence in prison, and then to come out and the first thing that they do is take their phone and go at it again and possibly see what has been published on them online while they were in jail and then go and harass those people and go after them. I would love to tell you that will not happen to me. <laughs> Trust me, I would fucking love to tell you that. That will not happen to me. That will not happen to the journalists that cover this first. I would love to tell you that, that this person will receive therapy, mental health, like counseling in jail. They're going to come out a new person and they will never offend again against myself and against anybody else. I would love to tell you that. However, what are the chances of that really happening? And this case has been shoved under the rug for too long. The stories of these women have not been listened to, have not been heard for way too long. And that is truly what in the end convinced me to actually cover it, because it has so many layers. On the surface, this is a story about a guy rejected by women, about a guy who doesn't see himself belonging in different friendship groups, belonging in his school with his classmates, belonging in the society. That guy then goes to do bad things against the people that he thinks have wronged him. But then, when you uncover the layers, this is truly like an onion of a case, because it truly shows you how much we allow it to happen. The authorities and the society and everything really worked for him, which should not have happened ever. It works towards people like this. I mean, if you think about what's going on in the news right now with Andrew Tate being arrested, how long did that ha The guy has a platform of millions and millions of supporters and nothing had been done until literally 
yes, Greta came along, but a technicality had happened until he was provoked enough to post his location, rather where he was eating his pizza. It's just wild to me that there's nothing really happening as if the internet was invented like yesterday. As you're gonna get pissed off about so many aspects of this case. But let me tell you how I found out about this story, because this journalist is excellent. I have checked out then her articles online, have listened to the whole podcast, and by the end of episode 5, let's say, of the podcast, that I was already kind of scribbling notes and decided I need to cover this case, because <laughs> my blood was boiling. Episode 5 makes your blood boil. You do not even understand. Like, if you listen to any single episode of this podcast, that that has to be it. So the name of the journalist is Sharon. Oh, I'm already butchering it. Sharon Calais. I will not pronounce it again because I can't pronounce it. It's such a cool name, and I can't bloody pronounce it. She works for the Guardian and has been deep diving, investigating into this case. The podcast includes interviews with uh, victims, with the mom of uh, Matthew Hardy, and with like a lot of other experts as well. So it really gives you the insights on cyberstalking that I don't think I have heard before. Maybe you have, but I definitely haven't. The way I discovered about the podcast was through the Guardian newsletter. Thought, let's give it a listen. And as I mentioned, by the end of episode 5, that I will heavily discuss during this video, I just knew I had to cover this case because 62 victims have been ignored all the way up until the trial of Matthew Hardy. I don't know if anybody abroad, you let me know if I'm mistaken, has heard about this case. I haven't heard about it until discovering the podcast and then doing my Google searches into it. And really, when I filter and do these deep dives and, you know, go through the filters throughout the years, there's not much else that this podcast hadn't exposed. There really isn't much else online, which means truly for years, for over a decade, nobody had cared. So let us change that and dive into this case. And here we won't start with the background of the offender. It will make sense later why I'm doing it in such a way. So we will go back to that message of, can I tell you a secret? Which is truly what hooked me on when it comes to this podcast, right? Because it's very Gossip Girl-like, it's very young adult, solving a mystery type, especially for people who grew up in those generations, loved watching those types of shows. However, this is reality. And this is no fake crime. It is somebody actually doing this and harassing people, starting off with that type of message. Once you're hooked and actually respond, the messenger will claim to have some information about your life. And usually it will be something defamatory, like your partner is cheating on you, or somebody's talking behind your back, or like a family member is involved in some sort of scandal. Let's say you block him, right? That will be the initial response that you will have in this type of situation. Another account appears to message you again. And if you were to stop responding completely, you are to get insane amount of calls, whether it's Facebook Messenger, whether it's like actual WhatsApp, whether it's your phone and them sending you texts, you are just going to get insane amount of calls, usually during the night. And if you were to respond or if a voicemail is an option on your phone, you're just going to get like heavy breathing on your phone from that 
person, whoever is messaging you. So ignoring him doesn't help. Responding doesn't help. Engaging with him does not help at all. You just can't win. The journalist for this podcast would hear about variations of the stories. So the meat and potatoes, right, of the misinformation that Matthew would spread would cause rifts. That was the main goal from what it seemed. So it would vary from him trying to break up a wedding, relationships, claiming incest or cheating scandals between the family members, all done in such a way for you to lose any support system that you have around you. So let us go into the specifics of one of the stories, and this would be the one that started it all. In the first part of the video, I'm going to go and speak about three of his classmates first, because Matthew started close to home, rather really within his school. And the first person that he would target in the mid-2000s would be his classmate Melanie. From what I gathered, this person is known in some sources as Melanie and in some sources as Andrea. Like, I think the podcast refers to her as Andrea, and a lot of people, a lot of women here, have protected their identity because they don't want anything to do with Matthew. After all, I'm going to refer to her as Melanie, just because I have seen it in more sources. So she would say she would get a random person messaging her on Facebook. From the sounds of it, and I'm not sure if this was a pattern in mid-2000s, but I know it is today, that these messages were the type of I'm coming to you as a woman, which, if you have ever heard that expression, you usually know it's somebody coming to you to be like, hey, we kind of seem to be sleeping with the same guy. So this person claimed her boyfriend was cheating on her and they just wanted to let no. It's just like, whatever you want to do with that information. But Melanie realized she was not the only person in her class to be getting texts. Because, of course, what these people usually don't account for is that other people have friends that they might share this information with. So, Melanie would say, like, her and her friend group kind of just, like, joined in the lunch break and started comparing messages. As they're doing that, they start thinking, who fits the bill here, right? Like, is it truly a woman that is on the other end of those messages? Like, because we are all here chatting about this and neither of us seems to be sending these messages. Doesn't seem like the tone of voice of any of us. And also, it doesn't seem like we have that kind of beef going on. Would it be somebody, possibly, who is a loner, who just doesn't seem to belong, who is a bit of a weirdo, who is constantly on their phone? And soon enough, they actually start responding to these messages, calling Matthew out. They would respond, you're Matthew Hardy, go away. Unlike maybe today, not many alarms were raised here, and that is because I need to place you at the time when this was happening, for you to realize what went into his favor to begin with, with these early cases, and just why no red flags were there, to the degree where they probably would be if this was to be happening now in 2023. So, social media still was just at its birth, right? In 2006, Facebook opened their membership, opened the ability to create social media profiles to anybody 13 and over. So, this would be the age range where Matthew was at the time. And I don't know if you remember the creation of the first social media accounts, but there was really 
hype. Like, I mean, I think like everybody today would say there's a hype when TikTok came around or like even Instagram ages ago and whenever they would make certain changes, like it would attract certain amounts of people. But because it was such a new thing, with MySpace and Facebook, everybody really wanted to be there. So there was not much control about who could create those accounts, whether or not they can lie about their age and how they're actually going to be there. Rather, it was just like get the most amount of users possible. And that aided all of those classmates to be on the platform, but also it aided people like Matthew Hardy. It would be around this time that Matthew started stalking his female classmates, and also all the girls from the surrounding schools. And how they would see him, Matthew Hardy, also went into his favor. It was said that he didn't have great time in Norwich High School, where he was at this point. Melanie would say that he was bullied, that people thought that he was strange. And there was another classmate that we'll speak about in a few minutes called Gina that said that he was isolated. And she, in particular, used to make effort to say hi. So the target and the motive were clear to these classmates, especially Melanie here. And we all know the type. The type that is bullied by the boys and the type that no girls have liked. So everybody thought that Matthew Hardy was a weirdo and that he was getting back at those who rejected him. In Melanie's own words, he was always ignored by women. He never had a girlfriend, he never hung out with girls. I'm not a psychologist, but it seems to me that he was trying to get back at the girls who rejected him. Experts have the name for this type of stalker, because it doesn't seem to be typical. We've seen you on Netflix, this is me making a general observation, as if like you lead the exact same life as I do. But usually there's a target, right? Like they have a target they obsess with, they stalk with, they will stalk online, but they will also stalk in person. And here, Matthew seems to have been having multiple targets concurrently for this whole period of time of about 11 years. This typology of a stalker is called either intimacy-seeking stalker or incompetent suitor. And these types of stalkers are typically motivated by loneliness and unknown to their victims or have only met them in passing. You know, I remember going to bed with a baseball bat, for example, and sleeping with my phone in one hand and a baseball bat next to my bed because I was so terrified. He must have spent a long time trawling through my social media and my family's social media. Um, I still don't know how he has connected certain things. He knew my son's name. I'm very conscious that I never put my son's name out there on social media. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's worrying that someone like myself, I'm quite cautious. Other people aren't as cautious as me. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is out there for, for anyone to get their hands on. Having that in mind, the fact that he is stalking these women concurrently, we go back to Melanie. So, initially, it starts off with her boyfriend cheating on her, she doesn't entertain it, or just, like, responds once. Of course, he's not satisfied with that, because he needs to exert control, have control over the situation. But he's also chatting with, at this point, about 25 other girls in that school. And he doesn't get the attention, right? So he waits for something to happen in one of those women's lives. And to Melanie, unfortunately, 
What happened is that her mother died in 2010. This is when Matthew decides to contact her again, saying that he had some truth, rather she, because that's how he's posing as just another girlfriend on the other side of that messaging service. Here it would be Facebook Messenger. So he would say he has some truth about her mother. His messages would go around the topic of your mother had been cheating in her marriage and your father has held it back for years. So Melanie immediately starts fuming, right? Not because of the lies, not even because of the misinformation, but rather like how brazen is this person? Like that can't face you, can't tell you this, but I'm pretty sure is one of my classmates. She would say that she couldn't take it anymore. She knew that he didn't know her mother at all and that he shouldn't be speaking ill of the dead. Melanie decides to call the police, right? She has had enough. She tells them about the MO, about the first message that starts it all for every single one of these women. Something along the lines of, hey, hon, I've got something to tell you. It was specific to school people. All the girls were from their year, so it had to be somebody in their year. She literally has a lowdown of, like, Sherlock Holmes. Of, like, this is what we have investigated in our lunch break. Please do something about it. That they have landed out, um, that they have landed on Matthew Hardy, right? Someone called him out and he actually admitted it. That is a crucial part in this podcast, that Matthew Hardy admitted it. And this, because it's all online, would be in writing, would be in one of those messages. That everybody knew he would hack into new accounts, like create new ones. What does the police do? The police says that because the messages were from anonymous accounts, they couldn't check to figure out who the third party was. Like, just, I would like you to translate this to whatever job you're in, whatever position you're in. For me, customer service, right? Imagine somebody comes back to me and they're like, hey, can you figure out where my order is? Or whatever. Can you figure it out? This is my email address. This is my name. This is my date of birth, whatever the fuck it is. I have the resources to figure that out, right? I put it on the system and I figure it out. You just, you just do the same, my man. You just have everything at your disposal to do your job. But it seemed here that a recurring action, rather inaction, that will happen is that nobody wanted to. Nobody did. So we go on to another classmate because there will be multiple stories here. There was Amy, where we believe that stalking extended to in-person monitoring of the victim as well. Amy, from all accounts, was in the batch that tried to ignore Matthew Hardy. And by now, we know that that doesn't work and nothing works, really. You can't do anything to protect yourself. But we also do know that that results in multiple calls. Amy would say she would get sometimes 50 calls a day. One time, he would say that he saw her washing her car. So this is why we believe that this has actually extended to in-person stalking. Another time, he would comment on the type of shirt, like the color of the shirt that she was wearing. And this is when she started also having emotional distress because of it and constantly crying and actually reported this to the Cheshire police. They would say that things online were out of control. They advised her to delete her Facebook account and to block the phone number of the harasser. 
So this didn't work and Amy had been harassed throughout the years because we know this happens concurrently. So he just moves on to somebody else, leaves you alone for a bit and then goes back to you. So by 2013, because she would also be one of the classmates, she just worked at the garage, I believe, sort of, whether it was part-time, full-time, I'm not really 100% sure, but they knew of Matthew Hardy and the police knew of Matthew Hardy, which is another crucial thing to know here. The police had been provided a series of screenshots of all of the conversations, the numerous harassing accounts, and they knew of Matthew Hardy's name. Because of this, by this point, Hardy was actually brought into the police. He would plead guilty and he was given suspended sentence and a restraining order by court instead of him actually serving some time in prison. So he gets a restraining order. Amy would say that he would abide by that restraining order for about two months and then he resurfaced. So she rang the police again saying that he had broken the rules of the freaking restraining order. He's stalking her again. And they said they would investigate but nothing was done. Amy would say between 2014 and 2017 she would repeatedly call the police but the police just wouldn't be dealing with it. So now Amy is still dealing with it, it's still concurrent, the police isn't doing anything, so let me give you a story of yet another classmate called Gina. You might remember Gina in kind of like a personal description on the corridors of the schools that I have given you about, where Gina was actually the person that would try, would attempt to give Matthew some time of day, just to say hi in passing. Just be nice to the man and you will now hear how he repaid that kindness. With Gina's account of events, we actually see how Matthew escalates. Because here he faked her account. Or rather, she would say like he created his own profile and then changed the details so that they reflect hers. And then he added somebody. So every day that she woke up, she would get not the messages from Matthew Hardy, rather from the people that he would contact as Gina. And people would ask her, like, hey, is this you? Like, this person just added me. And the classmates knew who he was, so they're like, oh, this is Matthew Hardy. But others didn't. Like, the family members didn't. And on Facebook, pretty much, like, if somebody accepts your friend request, depending on the settings at the time, that's it. They can just message you and then spam you continuously. So this happened to her every day. And she was actually scared to even interact with people outside of her house because she knew that Matthew Hardy lived near her. Gina would say she was terrified to go to her parents' house because it was only five minutes away from Matthew Hardy's. She had to cover her face with a hood every time that she would go. Yet again, in Gina's case, he used the family death in order to taunt his victims. So here, Gina's grandma passed away from COVID in 2020. And... Gina started immediately having a meltdown when she saw, then a couple of days later, a profile with her grandma's details pop up on Facebook and a message pop up from the profile saying, hey, Gina. She knew immediately that was Matthew Hardy and she was by this point just done with it. When Gina would report him to the Cheshire police, which would be the same police force that all of these classmates have gone to and reported, Matthew Hardy, she would get a very similar response to Amy and to Melanie. Here, however, she reported him in 2016. So this is four years before this 
final meltdown moment of like her grandma passing away from COVID and Matthew going online again to talk to her. She went to Cheshire Police and the case actually went to the CPS, to Crown Prosecution Service. But in April, then on 2017, the CPS refused to take the case on the grounds that nobody was injured. So Gina, just like all of the other victims here, and we are just speaking about the first batch of victims of Matthew Hardy, had felt that nobody is going to do anything until somebody's hurt or killed. This is a sideline, or some of you will consider it a sideline, but I find it pertinent to this story, because a lot of excuses... I'm not going to say excuses, but this is excuses, right? That people will be pointing out to here is that there was no database. So there was no national database and victims went nationwide, right? That is going to be like something that I have heard in this podcast so many times. I know there is a DNA database, but like... Here, luckily, luckily, nobody that we at least know of had actually died in the hands of Matthew Hardy. So I think what they are referring to here is like online database of crimes. So if, I don't know, somebody in London was to put uh, Matthew Hardy's place, on Matthew Hardy's name online, they wouldn't be able to track him down and connect him to the crimes in Cheshire happening around this time in Northwich. However, as I am mentioning... All of these crimes, like at least 25 classmates of his, have been victims of his. And however many of them went to the same police station, to the Cheshire police station. So there's just no excuse. There's just no excuse for nobody there to look this person up. If there's a single hit, not like 25 plus hits, single hit, do something about it. Beyond that, I also have a huge problem about the in-person stalking part here and how, again, the excuses that these victims were given just never made sense. Because just even from the accounts, the screenshots of the messages, literally everything being able to be proven because it's online in black and white, or rather blue and white because Facebook, they would be able to prove it. And certain things like Amy's stalking in particular the fact that he knew that Gina's mother passed away kind of makes you believe that he was stalking people in person as well. So we have to talk a bit about stalking, go into a bit of Crown Prosecution Service and why they didn't really bring it to court for you to actually understand how archaic the laws on stalking are. I'm going to give you the short of it and just put a couple of screenshots on the screen because... I don't think a lot of you will find this particularly interesting, so I'll try to summarize it in just a few quick lines. The Act on Harassment was introduced in 1997, and then stalking gets added in 2012. Stalking can be committed two ways. Stalking involving fear of violence, or stalking involving serious alarm or distress. As you can see, even from the definition of stalking, it doesn't seem like it really applies to the online world. It gives you the behaviors associated with stalking as following a person, contacting them by any means, publishing different statements, interfering with their property or the possessions of them, watching or spying on them. And when it comes to cyberstalking, it is defined as the harassment that can take place on the internet and through the misuse of email, which yet again does not sound like a person, I don't know, in their 20s had written something like this, who is aware of how the online world works. It just genuinely sounds like, I don't know, your auntie who is, for the first time on Facebook, 
and thinks that email is still widely used to stalk people online has written this. This means when you combine this single paragraph on cyberstalking, and this is from the Crown Prosecution Service website, so very limited information, meaning that it just hasn't been elaborated, hasn't been really worked on in terms of laws, in terms of sentencing, in terms of anything, really. So when you combine that when it comes to cyberstalking, and then stalking and harassment just being seen as a serious offense if some harm is done to a person, then we have to speak about the sentencing. What does it mean in terms of actual indictment? You, in short, have to prove fear of violence for the person to get something that isn't just a few months behind bars. So, for harassment or just stalking, the maximum is about six months in jail. If you can prove fear of violence or serious alarm or distress, then the maximum sentence is 10 years in jail and or a fine. From the podcast, we get a bit more insight from the actual experts in cybersecurity, and they define cyberstalking as malicious or obsessive following through internet presence. They would say that stalkers track down and follow their victims through social media, and they might even locate them in the real world and then try to contact them from there. This might not be enough for these stalkers, so they might also hack into victims' social media accounts or create fake accounts in their victims' names in order to get information to spread lies about them, both of the things that Matthew Hardy did. The online channels are not just limited to social media accounts. It can be emails, it can be chat forums, everything digital, even text messages, that can be used to terrorize people. And there is control that plays the huge aspect in all of this, right? Like, it's undeniable, is the first thing that you think when you think about stalker and somebody exerting this amount of power. However, what I found interesting is that there is also embarrassment playing a factor here. Control just doesn't seem to be enough. The stalkers here want you to feel exactly how they felt for years, as if all of this was your fault. Back from the sideline to our story, to sum up this section on Matthews stalking his classmates, we are getting into the territory of the victim profile and the general transfer of blame here that will yet again go into his favor. And I understand you're going to be fed up by how many times I would say something going into Matthew Hardy's favor, but I'm doing it to show you just how scary this truly was. Because the laws here were not and are not designed to protect the victims. Remember Gina, his classmate, who actually paid him some time of day? In June of 2017, so this is after she actually reported him, the police did nothing, she would be at a festival in London. And she would report to the police after this festival that there was an incident where somebody had taken a picture up her skirt. Normal person would assume that this is a criminal offense, right? No, not at the time. Not at the time of 2017. It is a criminal offense now because of Gina Martin, one of Matthew Hardy's classmates, because she would campaign relentlessly to change the law, and upskirting was finally made a criminal offense in 2019. Gina is actually insanely inspiring. Like, beyond saying that being the victim of Matthew Hardy had seeped into her work and inspired her activism, she also was nominated for the Order of the British Empire in 2020. However, she rejected the nomination. 
According to this tweet that people have found online, she had rejected it, saying that it would be hypocritical of her to accept this honor while also being vocal about all of the commitment to anti-racism and understanding the deep and unsettling race issues that the British Empire has built into its foundation. Through the years, we have Gina being inspired by the act of upskirting not being illegal at the time that it happened, so when she obviously reported it in 2017, nothing was done, because yet again, it wasn't a criminal offense, and she had believed that Matthew Hardy was behind that picture and then distribution of that picture. And the journalist behind the podcast actually coined the term digital short skirt phenomenon, which is technically what Matthew had done online, exposing details, pictures included as well, of the victims online without their consent. Now, the next set of victims that we will talk about might not surprise you as you are already forming an image of who Matthew Hardy was targeting, women that he envied and could not get with as Matthew will start targeting influencers. So, there are really three phases, rather three target groups for Matthew Hardy. The first one we had already spoken about. The girls that he would go to school with, the girls in his proximity, right? Then he would get more brazen. He would start stalking women in the surrounding area. Some classmates, some just like acquaintances, friends of a friend. Then, finally, he started stalking women that he had no connection whatsoever to any of them. And usually those women will be successful, people with actual personal and professional lives, and often with large social media following. In 2018, there was a woman named Zoe that was on the target list for Matthew. Zoe was added by him on Snapchat, and as soon as she accepted the request, he started off with the usual, can I tell you a secret? She took the bait and just responded, engaged in it a bit, and he kind of started spreading a rumor about somebody cheating on somebody else. Now, Zoe ignores him, and we already know where this goes. It goes into the phone calls where he breathes down your throat at night. So, by this point, just to mention, he's been doing this for years, right? It's 2018. He is beyond confident. He also doesn't stop there. Now, he starts mocking her like a baby. He starts adding other people, up to about like 50 people in her life, including her family, posing as her, because he creates fake profiles and pretends that he is her, engaging into whatever gossip it is in order to rift this family apart. And here, the main thing that he did that is critical and really caused, like, Zoe so much emotional distress is that he started pretending to be her boyfriend's dad online. So, even beyond creating the fake profiles for Zoe, he started posing as her boyfriend's dad. And her boyfriend's dad, in real life, was a doctor. Now, what Hardy would do from the fake profile as her boyfriend's dad would start chatting with teenagers, basically threatening to damage his professional reputation. Zoe would say that she felt like she was to blame, that she was the one who drew Matthew Hardy to her boyfriend's family, and that that is why this felt like it was her responsibility. So, she reports it to Lincolnshire police, in this case, in April of 2019. 
And Zoe would say she was so scared, she was so distressed, so on edge at this point, she would sleep with a samurai sword by her bed, because she lived by herself, and just thought that this person might escalate to in-person stalking and might break into her house. The police tell Zoe that they can't trace his number. They can't really do much about it. And why? What would be the reason why the police can't do their job? Well, they only do that, tracing of someone's number, in high-profile cases, like a rape, or murder. So Zoe's response to them was, so you have to wait for something to happen to me before you can do anything. And this is exactly how all of these victims felt. Someone had to die before something is done. Yet again, his name was just there. Because in desperation, Zoe actually turned to a private investigator. She hired one who would identify Matthew Hardy as the stalker. And this happened July 2019. So yet again, as if the classmates identifying this person wasn't enough, there's a professional, somebody who has qualifications, identifying him by the name. The private investigator then and Zoe supplied that name to Lincolnshire police, who tells Zoe that an officer would visit Hardy and tell him to stop. That is just the extent. Yet again, they're not doing any actual work. Fuck knows if they're putting it in the database. So he lasts about two months, and then he starts harassing Zoe again. I know at this point that I am throwing a lot of names at you, and I will tie it all back together. But here we have to talk about somebody else. Because in 2019, as this is happening, so Zoe has reported it, the police again knows the name, he moves on, he goes and concurrently stalks his victims. So here he moves on to Abby. And here the offenses escalate to just full-time impersonation, because I don't think he is at this point, personal opinion, satisfied just harassing, just doing the, can I tell you a secret? He has to taunt his victims. He has to escalate. He has to taunt other family members as well, to cause the rift, to cause the maximum amount of damage. So the short of it was, Abby was a dancer. She's an influencer online, has multiple social media accounts. And Matthew would go on to impersonate her, so create fake accounts with her name on them, start off conversations with co-workers, usually of sexting nature, and would also obtain intimate pictures of Abby and then would offer them to strangers for sex. He also managed to destroy her relationship with her boyfriend. The long of it is that Abby is an influencer, so she has over 10,000 followers on Instagram, and as such, she gets invited to go to a trip to Ibiza with a couple of her friends. She posts a picture on a yacht, just a smiling picture with her and a few friends, and doesn't think much of it, right? It starts generating likes, that's exactly what the point of it was. However, in the north of England, there is a man that comes across that picture, and she is to become part of a new phase in his stalking. Abby gets a message from a friend that was on the boat with her, and this friend just asks her innocently, like, oh, where did you get that bikini that you were wearing? And Abby thinks, like, I swear I have told her, like, where I got this bikini, but sure, let me just respond. And she kind of does it in such a way, like, oh, I think I told you, but, like, yeah, this is where I got it. She brushes it off and thinks, like, oh, she just had forgotten about it. But then the next message comes about, and this other girl from the yacht basically blatantly accuses Abby of sleeping with another girl's boyfriend. 
Then the boyfriend of Abby starts getting messages that she is cheating on him. At this point, Matthew had taken complete control. He had just taken over. He managed to break that relationship that Abby had had with her boyfriend, and he also created hundreds of accounts online. He would get the bits and pieces of information just by people taking a bite, like just by people answering, providing him like the tiniest bit of info, and then he would thrive on that and continue chatting with another person from like these fake profiles posing as Abby. Now, Abby, during this time, while she's trying to ignore all of this, while she's trying to just move on with her life, also has a photo shoot, right? Like, she has a job to do. So, she goes meets this photographer who takes pictures of her, and some of those pictures were nude. So, she on Instagram, through Instagram DM, asks this photographer to send her the link to, like, a Google Drive and he does. However, she was of the belief that these pictures are only going to be accessed by her, and then she can distribute them as she wishes to. So, fake Abby, however, was now going to use those pictures. So, here, Matthew, from my understanding, had actually hacked into her account, and managed to take that drive and then started distributing those pictures. He started sexting her former boss, using them to break every single relationship that she had had in her life. Just even strangers, like, basically offering Abby up as if she's just online in control of this, whereas she just wasn't. For Abby, it all culminated with her next trip to Ibiza. So, she was again planning to go there for work, and the night before, she starts being harassed by Matthew. But at this point, it wasn't even just taunts, it wasn't even just breaking any single relationship that he had left to break. Rather, it was just borderline threats. He started saying that he's going to get her in Ibiza, that he knows she's going, and he's going to get her. So, this time, Abby rings the police. She reads out the transcript of that chat to them, and the police said they were half an hour away, but they kind of asked her, like, do they really need to come? So, Abby just said, yes, like, what do you say? Like, it just seemed like this wasn't an imminent threat for them. The police didn't come in the end from what I gauged, and she sat awake the whole night, just terrified, thinking that he's in front of her house, thinking that he's going to break in and get her either there in the UK or in Ibiza. With Abby, we really get the insight here that you don't get with cyberstalkers, or rather not the ones that aren't as notorious as Matthew Hardy was, because the blame really falls on her. And this is by her family, from what Abby had said, and also by the police. The family, like, after, you know, being contacted by all these fake accounts, would tell Abby that she is the one who needs to work this out. The auntie of hers told her, like, she's going to block her on everything, she doesn't want any of the drama brought onto the family, and that it is her fault. And Abby would say, like, she got upset because it wasn't her fault. She wasn't trying to bring this drama to the family, and it just really hurt her bond with so many family members. The police, on the other hand, had no sense of urgency, and what happened with the influencers in particular, they would kind of advise them, like, just stop posting. Why don't you just put your profile on private and just stop, you know, this thing that brings you the livelihood? As if somebody yet again would tell you, just stop doing your job and somehow survive 
onto something because we don't want to be bothered to do ours. So now you stop doing yours and somehow figure out how to live. This made Abby feel like she wasted police time, like she's just some blonde girl on social media who was posting where she was all the time and wanted attention. The journalists behind the podcast would say this is the same thing that happens with sexual assault victims. They're blamed for the clothing they're wearing, the amount of clothing they wear. They're asking for it. It's the same thing with a large online presence. It is seen to make these women culpable for whatever harassment they have received. Due to the police ignorance of somebody who is clearly escalating, Matthew managed to get away with stalking so many people from different ranges, usually the three groups that we have spoken about. But if you remember, it would be classmates, it would be just like people he knew, it was kind of adjacent to, then like people in his proximity, and then it would be the influencers, people he couldn't be with, people whose friends group he couldn't belong to. In one such occasion, I was only able to find one story, and I find it particularly interesting that belongs kind of to the second group, because this is the closest that Matthew Hardy came to his own family. And it came with the story of a girl called Sabrina. Sabrina was the friend of Matthew's aunt. So they briefly met up for like a family gathering in 2015. And at this time, Sabrina's mom had just passed away. So she went to visit the mother's friend before her death. And the two of them would just be mourning Sabrina's mom together. Matthew started messaging her only a couple of days after that wake that he had attended. Like, he knew that her mother had just passed away. He knew how vulnerable she was. He started messaging her on Facebook, accusing Sabrina of having an affair with the husband of her mother's friend. He would say, how can you do such a thing? She was your mother's best friend and you cuckoodled her. The two of them had no relationship whatsoever. Here's Sabrina, however, because she knew the family. She goes to Matthew's mom, Donna, and she just tells her, this is what happened. What the hell? Like, can you, like, speak to your son? Can anything be done about it? And Matthew's mom says, like, don't worry, like, I do apologize. I'm going to speak to him about it. And she gives an excuse. And this is the first time from everything that I have seen, the first time in the timeline in 2015 that we hear about this excuse. And the excuse that Donna, Matthew's mom, gives Sabrina is Matthew's diagnosis of autism, that all of this behavior is due to him being autistic. So here I'll bring you back again to his classmates getting together and figuring out this was Matthew Hardy, but maybe back in the day, in the mid-2000s, not doing much about it. And this is, yes, because he was a loner, he was a weirdo, they just didn't think that this is going to escalate. But this now adds an additional factor. And this would be the concerns of Matthew's mental health. A lot of people just didn't want to give him up to the police due to this. Because of this, however, Matthew continued. Because of this, he managed to invent the whole relationship that Sabrina had apparently had with her mother's ex-boyfriend that was, by the way, a 78-year-old man. And it seems to me like once he was actually provoked, once Sabrina did go to speak to his mom, he tried to make Sabrina completely socially dead. 
So he would go and create fake accounts and then contact Sabrina's friends and family, claiming that she had slept with their husbands or boyfriends. He had information on every aspect of her life, including who her friends were, where her children went to school, and also like what her previous employment was. Because he would get the correct information harassing people, they would believe the fake Sabrina and break off any sort of relationship with her. Once that happened, obviously Sabrina knew there is absolutely no point of going just back to his mom. Like, she had given it a chance, she had given him fair play on her. Honestly, I probably wouldn't have. I would have probably called the police straight away, but, you know, she gave it some fair chance. It did not improve, it actually kind of escalated and went in complete opposite direction, so she goes to the police. She reports the case, and the police advised her to block him online, because that's what they do. Nothing really gets done, all the way up until 2019. And this is when Sabrina would get a call from a police officer. The police officer on the other end of the line is the name that you will know and is associated heavily with this case. His name is Kevin Anderson, and he's been with the Cheshire Police for 22 years. Now, he calls Sabrina and just asks her, like, a simple, innocent question. Do you remember a guy called Matthew Hardy? What Sabrina had heard from Kevin is what any of these victims wanted to hear for so many years by this point, and that is that he thinks he can put this guy in jail. According to Kevin, according to his collation, his work, him being passed on this case, he found out that Matthew Hardy had over 100 criminal records in the police system and 62 women had reported some sort of offense against them. Let me finally loop you into the case, what was happening behind the scenes. As I mentioned, Kevin Anderson works for the police station in Cheshire for 22 years. In December of 2019, he is assigned to a stalking case involving Matthew Hardy. He looks through the internal systems in the Cheshire police station, and he finds something that a lot of people would consider shocking, neglectful. You know, you add your own verb, you add your own adjective here. Not verb, adjective. You add your own adjective here. There were more than 100 logs on the system about Hardy, from 62 victims, obviously, like, multiple reports as well. He finds out that there were 10 arrests against. He finds out that Hardy was arrested 10 times and interviewed voluntarily further three times. And something that stood out to Kevin was that he almost even broke up a marriage. Like, he broke off so many relationships, he would invent cheating scandals, but on a wedding day, at one point, he almost broke a couple off. And he thought, this guy needs to be brought to book. Finally, finally, Kevin looks at all of the backdates, right? Looks and finds out that all of these reports are backdated into 2011 onwards. And he would say, like, I don't think he justified the police work here. I don't think anybody can justify the police work here. But he said, like, he can't speak for the officers themselves. But people maybe didn't understand the extent, like, didn't understand what was happening to the victims. And maybe they didn't understand the legislation, right? Because as I have shown you, there's this little paragraph on cyberstalking. And you know that if you can't make the case to the court, basically, like, 
a lot of people might think, what's the point? You and me might not, but a lot of people might think, like, well, what's the point? There's no fear of violence, nothing is going to happen to somebody, somebody's just trolling them online. So, Kevin contacts all the officers that were on those cases at those times when the reports were made and just arranges for everything to be transferred to him. On one end, now he's contacting the police officers, and on the other end, he's contacted all of the victims of Hardy, trying to build this case, trying to figure out what do they have. Like, did they have any screenshots? Send them away. And of course, most of these victims did. They were waiting for this moment for years. They literally had them on the ready as they first reported it to the police. Among those victims, he contacted, and truly, why this case, in my personal opinion, has been brought to justice was because of all of these victims doing the God's work, doing it all together. But there was one person in particular who collated possibly more than any of them all together. That was a bad bitch called Leah. Leah had a boutique in Kent, right? And again, on the surface, to Matthew Hardy, it looked like somebody like an influencer, right? Somebody that he should really mess with because he is not living the life that they are. So, in 2019, he does just that. He stalks her, he contacts her family and friends hundreds of times, makes about 10 calls an hour during some nights. He just tries to destroy Leah's life completely. But, you see, what a superficial research, what, like, taking the bait and then, like, somebody giving you some information on this person doesn't really tell a criminal like Hardy when he thinks that someone's just an influencer, when he sees this just superficial picture, is that Leah didn't just have a boutique, right? Leah was also a paralegal. I bet he didn't really count on that. He really didn't count on somebody to know the ins and outs of the law and how to build a case against him. Leah, just like all of the other victims, goes to the police, thinking like, okay, I'm gonna report this, provide you with the evidence, cool, sorted, done. No, because this happens in November 2019, and of course, as we know, the police didn't do anything. So... Leah thinks, okay, I was a paralegal. I can obtain the evidence and then go back to the police, right? And then they will do something. When I tell you my jaw had dropped because the dossier that this woman had collated was 700 pages long. She had 700 pages of evidence of communication and harassment by Matthew Hardy. So, this included nearly all of his social media profiles and phone numbers. So, she did the work for them. She did everything for them. Based off of the insights that we got from Leah, any attention made it worse. He would tell her that screenshotting this to the police is pointless, because he is cocky at this point and he is taunting these victims. And Leah would say there was no doubt in her head that this was his full-time job. Like, this man did not do anything else. There was no time for it. This was his full-time commitment. With the 700-page dossier now, Leah goes to the police, she tells him, here it is, everything is there, like, make an arrest, right? Like, everything is there. His contact details, like, I've done the work for you. The police does a good job, spending chef's kiss, not enough, though. Now, how we tie it all together. Remember where we left Abby? She goes to her trip to Ibiza in the end, despite of being frightened by Matthew Hardy the night before, and does an Instagram Live. And among the comments is Matthew Hardy himself. So, she rushes to check social media, and he messaged her from his personal account. So, now she knows the name as well, confessing 
that it was him. He literally outed himself. Abby makes the police report to the Cheshire police, and this is when our police officer, Kevin, connects the dots. So Kevin pulls data from the phone that Matthew Hardy was using and builds up that evidence. What I put in the script is he just did his job. I know that Kevin had been praised by this podcast and by everybody here, and I'm grateful for people like Kevin who actually did the work here, but he just did his job. Somebody could have Kevin this in 2011. Somebody could have done this a lot, a lot earlier and saved so many people so much emotional damage and potentially some, like, serious aggravating crimes. Not that this wasn't serious, but you know what I mean. Because we all spoke about how stalking can actually obviously result in other crimes, in in-person crimes and murder. At this point, from the insights from the podcast, we find out that this case didn't even need a tech expert. Like, the same way that Leah, the paralegal, has actually collated the evidence and managed to figure out it was all his accounts. If you looked up a prank caller website and basically put the number that Matthew was contacting people with, there were about 400 plus lookups for that same number. So clearly, same person, same IP address, same everything is operating from the exact same location and the exact same device. At the other end of the town, Amy luckily reaches out to the same no-nonsense police officer. She also finds out that he's at the police's radar, that Kevin is looking into it. And the police officer again figures out the identity, that this is the same person that had been stalking Amy, because in 2011, the year that he started stalking Amy, he was also hacking into another classmate's account. And on behalf of that classmate, he was just stalking dirty, sexting, others basically pretending that he was her. Now, with the dossier and with the physical evidence from multiple victims, as well as the proof that Hardy is behind all of the accounts, he finally gets arrested. In February of 2020, he is arrested by the police, and in March of the following year, so 2021, Matthew Hardy was charged with multiple stalking offenses. So, let us speak about the man himself before we talk about the sentencing and the sentencing that he had gotten for all of these offenses. Matthew's mom, Donna, would describe Matthew as somebody who was a really good kid, somebody who was really close to the family, especially his grandma. Well, he was actually close to both of his parents, but you see, his parents got divorced when he was five years old. So, between Matthew being five and seven, he still had a good connection with his dad. You know, like, weekend trips. They had, like, a solid divorce, and he would still go see his dad. However, then when Matthew was seven, his dad starts seeing somebody else, and he decides to completely exclude Matthew out of his life. And he goes and communicates this to Matthew. Like, it's not like, you know, he just suddenly stopped seeing him. He blatantly rejected his seven-year-old son. So, I can see how this could be a trigger for somebody who just, without any understanding now, will not see his dad for the rest of his life. And I can feel sorry for him at this point, but we also have to see this as a trigger towards any of his behavior in the future. And this is why I covered the case before the background, because now certain stories that he would tell his victims and their families about their dads in particular, or their boyfriends leaving or cheating, make sense. 
usually with a father, uncle figures, breaking a couple's wedding day. He really tried to do damage in that area because that is what hurt him and that is what triggered him when he was seven years old. The journalist gives us the insight of who Matthew might have been from that point on to the early teenage years. And I can give you the insight because I have found his social media profiles as well. He was the person at the periphery of most pictures, like in the angle, either like fully there or just kind of poking, never in the center of attention. His classmates from County High School Leftwich would say that he would be the person to stay away from, not really to talk to about, not really to engage much in the conversations. He'd be the kid in the corner, kind of just shriveled away from the surroundings, in baggy clothes, and just quiet. What would people say about Matthew Van Struel? Did he have any nicknames? No, he didn't have any nicknames that I can remember. No. Just the weird one, I suppose. Oh, well, we stay away from him, he's weird. Creepy. People would give us insights of who he was in class. Like, he would be sitting on his own, he struggled with maths and certain subjects, he only had one friend, and he would maybe try to get involved, right? He would maybe try to, like, be part of a joke, laugh at it, but just would be ignored. Like, we know that type. Like, some of us were that type, let's be honest, and didn't go to commit a lot of fucking shit that he did. The only memorable thing his classmates remember him doing is there was this occasion they were given notebooks and they were putting their names on top of them. And Matthew put Joey Blogs instead of his own. If you are a fake Brit like me, like not born and raised here, um, yeah, it's kind of like average Joe. It's a placeholder name here in the UK. I had to Google it. I know I'm not proud to admit it. I'm not proud to admit it with the amount of years I have lived here and I have no clue. I was so lost. When I tell you, I was lost. <laughs> it's like, what, is this funny? Is this like a comedian? No, not a comedian. Not a fucking comedian. Anyways, what the classmates would also say was that Matthew didn't seem like somebody you would worry about. Like, the professors also wouldn't say that. Because, like, if not classmates, maybe, but, like, the teachers would raise some alarm bells if he was somebody who was aggressive, who had vindictive traits, who was constantly seeking revenge against people that bullied him, against you know, the girls that wouldn't get with him. But he wasn't. Not at the time. With the type of person I had just described, you would expect somebody like Matthew Hardy to have been bullied. And a lot of people would confirm that, including his mom, including his classmates. It would just be who would know the extent of what. And we still don't know the full extent. So there was a classmate that was interviewed for the podcast, and she said she got it bad. So that means for her, like, Matthew was literally at the bottom of the barrel. So he probably got it a lot worse. The mom was interviewed for the podcast, and she would say, like, she doesn't know the extent, but he would come back to the house and would kind of say, like, he was bullied. And she always thought, like, it might have just been because of the clothes. Like, he was wearing baggy clothes, and maybe it was because of that, because of the way he looked. This is who Matthew was within the school walls, and these were his early stalking days. And we know that after school, he never went to uni, he never got a job, so this became his full-time job. He was just online day and night. He would retreat 
into his block of flats, into the flat where he was, and then his room would just never leave. And we don't know the exact year, but the podcast makes me think it was after school that he got the autism diagnosis. So the mom never mentions the actual year, but she did say that she noticed the difference in him at the time. She noticed he was getting more and more withdrawn. He would retreat into his computer after leaving school, and at the beginning, she said, like, she didn't really understand the social media, right? Like, she didn't get why he would be, like, with his face in the screen at all times. But it seemed like the catch was the more friends that you have, right? And that was truly where Facebook was at the time, and, I mean, the whole thing with influencers and stuff. It is the more followers to have, the more friends that you have. But the friends aspect, I think, for Matthew really had him in a grip. The mom would say that at the time, it seemed like he had a girlfriend, that he was into football. And even if you go and look at his Twitter account, it did seem like he was quite passionate about football, but passionate from what I have seen in an angry way. You know the type, yes, again. The type that is like, I would have done this better. Like, how dare this player play like this and, like, I don't know, do a penalty. I can't I can't speak football terms. I can't for shit. But you get a type. Like, it's not the type that would ever write anything positive. It's the type that would shit on how his team is playing as if they could just be on the field and do it ten times better. In the episode five, that if you remember, I found the most triggering and it was what made me decide to cover this case. The mom was interviewed and she would show the picture of him going to camp with his girlfriend. It kind of gives us the impression that Matthew might have had a life, right? It's mean to say, I get it, but rather we see the other side of Matthew compared to what everybody else had described. And this is where it all began, with him hiding behind the screen, starting it off with his classmates, with Melanie, and then his horizons have widened. So let me focus on episode 5. Let me tell you why this triggered me so much. As I mentioned, episode 5 solely focuses on the interview between the journalist um, that works for Guardian and then um, his mom. So his mom brings a couple of interesting points, does give us the insight, the completely different side to Matthew that we haven't seen before about his passions about the fact that he had a girlfriend, apparently, at some point in his life, and how he was autistic, how he retreated into himself. So everything I have spoken about so far, right? Cool. I'm just going to give you a debrief of this episode, and then you can tell me your opinions in the comments, and I will tell you mine, okay? I built a bridge. I was filming for about, like, a couple of days when I first heard this episode, I have since built a bridge, so I'm just going to try to be as indifferent towards the information I'm about to give you as possible, and you tell me what you think, okay? In this podcast episode, Matthew's mom, Donna, talks about the time that Matthew was given a restraining order and community service. According to the mom, she wanted the police to deter him and keep him for a few hours, or just do anything to get him better, for social workers to do anything. And according to Donna, he only got assigned a social worker, despite of the charges, despite of him having restraining orders, being brought to the police, he only got assigned a social worker to help him with assisted living. So, based on his diagnosis, 
a few months before his sentencing. Donna speaks about the charges brought against him and his victims, saying that if she had a daughter, would she encourage her to pose in bra and underwear? No, some things need to be kept personal. So, when the journalist kind of questions this more, calls her out on it, some would say, things that this might not be the best response ever, the mom says, well, we just don't live in a perfect world. You can't just share anything online. When faced with his actual threats towards these victims then, or how he's gonna get them, how he's going to find them wherever they are in the world, the mom would say that this is just the stuff that people say online every day. If you want to be involved in that, then stay on there. The mom would also mention the court appearances of the victims once this was actually brought to trial, the part of this case that we are yet to talk about, saying that the victims were expected to behave in subdued way in court. That's just not really her experience of how these victims actually appeared. But also... She hasn't listened to the impact statements, nor has she seen any of the messages saying what would it help her with? What would she gain from seeing that or acknowledging that in any way? So cool, that's pretty much a summary of episode 5. And as I have told you, I have built a bridge since my blood boiled for about a couple of days. But I just wanted you to have this part of the story. Both so that you have that side of Matthew and also to have an explanation as to maybe how Matthew's opinions have formed. Because in my personal opinion, this does explain a thing or two about who Matthew was, how he might have been brought up, or even maybe what he might have heard in passing, right? Because even if this isn't just drilled into him every single day, where he is a victim and whatever he does is justifiable, while if somebody else posts their life online, gets a living from what they do online, that's not because they're posting whatever they want and they shouldn't be doing that because they should be acting a certain way in court because they should be acting a certain way online, whereas the same rules do not apply to him whatsoever. Even if he was to have heard that just in passing from Donna to like a neighbor, something over coffee, probably stuck to him, probably stuck with him. And then you have that whole underlying trigger of, like, his father abandoning his mom, like, the whole cheating experience of how he must have perceived that, because the parents were already divorced, how he must have perceived that. As a seven-year-old, you combine that, and you get Matthew Hardy. I have never heard something, like, and I'm so grateful that this journalist had found his mom and, like, managed to get the interview. I've never heard something explain someone's psychology and behavior so well up until this point. I would just, I heard that episode, I was like, oh my god, oh my god, this explains everything. You let me know what you think, do you share my opinion, or do you not? Do you just not see anything wrong with any of Donna's statements made in that podcast episode? To pick up from where we left it off in the story, the charges against Matthew are finally brought. Now, when I say charges, there will only be five charges that they managed to bring to court. When you look at the stats, it comes as no surprise. Most police don't take stalking seriously, and only 11% of stalking reports in the UK lead to charges. When a crime is charged, only 0.1% of cases result in an actual conviction. 
Beyond this being frustrating, this is actually quite dangerous because stalking is the fifth stage of murder and there are eight stages in total. So it's like a layer underneath that in so many cases has led to murder as we have seen in the past. There was a study actually in 2017 studying 358 women who were killed and they found that 90% of those also involved stalking prior to the murder. So Matthew pled to five counts of stalking, which means that only five cases were strong enough, or rather Kevin managed to find enough evidence for only five of those for the basis of his indictment. So, so many women that we have heard on the podcast that I have spoken about today, that we have heard about like in the papers, so many women that came forward that did not come public afterwards were just not included in the court case. And PC Kevin Anderson is in the gallery as well. He's worried about this day for months. I was staying up at night thinking, could I do more? You know, I had a lot of sleepless nights. My partner would tell you that. I just wanted to make sure that whatever I did, it was going to be enough. The trial, from my accounts, took place between October 2021 and January 2022. We know that he was sentenced in January 2022. I'm saying that I think this is when the trial took place because there's nothing official online. I couldn't find a PDF or like a court document, anything official that was made public. So we know a bit about how the trial went and what the courts have heard because of the online articles. So let me loop you in. The courts would hear that Matthew created fake profiles on social media in order to befriend men and women, family members and friends across the UK. He would sometimes pose as those people, sometimes he would pose as victims in order to gather information and then cause further embarrassment. The community in the court was finally formed. The victims would finally meet and the courts will hear the messages read out by the victims themselves. A group of women approach each other, warily at first. Um, and that was when I met them for the first for the first time. But, I've, but we spoke on message, like they've messaged and said, at night we've said nice messages to each other. And like one of, one of the girls, she lives up in North, she said like, I feel so connected to you. Like if you ever need me for anything, I'm here. And I was like, oh my God, the same for you. They trade stories about their shared stalker. That obviously made us laugh a bit when we were sat in the waiting room to go in because they were exactly the same thing. It's always, can I tell you a secret? And that was like, that obviously made us laugh a bit. The extent of the stalking was explained by the prosecution. Prosecutor Andrew Green would say how on one occasion Matthew targeted a small business owner, calling her more than 70 times and set up a fake profile using her own pictures to speak to people close to her. The judge would hear about rifts in the families and about the extent of Matthew taunting his victims, where he would say things like, it will never stop, you know, and good luck figuring out who I am. And everything that the prosecution had presented was supported by evidence. The messages, the dossier from the victims that they themselves read out and the confirmation by the police that they were sent from Matthew Hardy's phones that he was the one creating those fake identities. So what was the defense's angle? Because this seemed like a pretty strong case. Slam dunk. Well, the defense argued that Matthew belonged in the lower category. He already pled guilty and that somehow automatically 
gets him 25% of his sentence off because of his plea, but also they were fighting for the lowest sentence possible. Cool, completely understandable. What they would present Matthew as would be as a young man struggling with his mental health, anxiety, and autism. He was trying, according to the defense, not my own words in any way, shape, or form, to make friends in the only way that he knew how to. So the defense painted a picture that his mom had painted, that some of his classmates had painted, of somebody struggling with abandonment, with rejection, who wanted to live a full and happy life, who would go online and see people living that life that he so desperately wanted, and the way that he reached out to people is how he was trying to make the connection, make actual friends, and fit in. His defense lawyer, called Sarah Haig, would explain that Hardy had autism, learning difficulties, and mental health issues. She would say he was unable to form relationship, he lived an isolated life, and this had led him to try to fit in the only way he knew, which is online. But then, as these people rejected him, they didn't want to be his friends, he would lash out. The main proof for Sarah's argument was just how all of this conversation started. Hello, can I tell you a secret? Just completely innocently started. Then it's the victim's problem that they rejected him, harassing them, and then obviously he would lash out. It's just completely justifiable based off of him being autistic and the learning difficulties. This is a sideline, right? Because I googled these people's names. And I googled Sarah's name, his defense lawyer's name, right? So, I find it interesting and definitely intentional that he was represented by a woman. Cool. No, no doubts there, right? We all agree on that? Cool. If you look at Sarah's career, however, there's another interesting fact. Because just even from the notable cases on her own website, I can tell you, I don't see a single case that I would not classify as controversial. She clearly is somebody who might choose these cases in such a way where it can benefit her career. Let's say that in the most politically correct way possible, because there's some cases there that look gut-wrenching. I'm just gonna leave it on the screen. You read it if you want, but she has defended some people that you're like, why, girl? Let's speak a bit about autism here, because it's interesting and it's something that I have never heard before. I haven't heard autism being used as a defense, actually, ever, and which makes me maybe a shitty person that is into true crime, I don't know. Like, have you ever heard about autism being used as a defense before? I just find it wild. Why do I find it wild? Because one in 100 people have autism, so about 1% of the world's population, meaning about 75 million people. I mean, why are not all of them doing something that, you know, results in crime? Not encouraging it, just saying, I think it's a bit of a mistake when it comes to people who are struggling with something like autism or Asperger's, which is something else that they would claim that Matthew had, like, later I'll speak more about this, but I think it's just a mistake towards people who actually have some mental health difficulties, learning difficulties, and lead a completely normal life. Have not hurt a bug, have not killed a flea. And yet we have Matthew Hardy and his whole defense team saying that this is because of autism. Now, something that I haven't heard about, but I have on this podcast, is this expert stating that it predisposes you to stalking. Hear me out. 
Mm. It only does it in a small percentage because of fixative behavior. So, still, it means that they, autistic people, can understand what's right and wrong and what rules are being broken. However, then, we have the other extent of that, where Matthew just escalated. He was taunting these victims. Usually, when you point out to somebody who is autistic that they are hurting somebody else, they would stop the pain. They would want to stop the pain for that person. However, Matthew didn't do that. Simon can't talk about Matthew directly, as he wasn't involved in the case. But he's led new research into how autistic people are treated in the criminal justice system. It's important to say right at the outset that most autistic people um, are not involved in criminal behaviour. Autistic people can understand what's right and wrong, and they can understand uh, rules and when rules are being broken. So we shouldn't sort of think of autism as a kind of um, a defence uh, against culpability, and you know, in the sense of forming an intention. But there are some people, autistic people, who, who do commit crimes. They do cross the line. And, you know, that's often because uh, they don't realise that there is a line or that they have become so immersed in a particular activity that they've lost sight of how their behaviour might be seen by others. The defense would use the purse the defense would use the first part of that, the fixated behavior, the fact that he had history of this diagnosis, the fact that he had mental health issues, you know, that he was just trying to make friends as a mitigating factor. Cool, it's all it's their right to do it. However, I'm just struggling with like the percentage of it, right? Because what weight should this have held, really? Is there an aspect of his personality that is derived from autism? Can you really prove, like, he was autistic and that's why he had this fixated behavior and that's why he took this as a full-time job? Is there an aspect of his personality that is derived from autism? Possibly, but when you break it down, if that is a small percentage, why should it affect the sentence to a huge degree? Why should it hold so much weight? According to the defense, the rejection that the defendant felt triggered a lashing out. And they would say that he does not understand that impact on the victims. Quite different than from the expert on the podcast saying that autistic people know right from wrong and that they usually want to take the pain away from people, not cause it, not cause even further pain. So, the prosecution and the defense resume their cases. Here in the UK, you don't have a jury, right? So the judge leaves and he comes back and everybody, based off of the laws, based off what I have shown you from the CPS website, is expecting Matthew to get tops a couple of months. Tops, if not like a couple of months and maybe a fine community service, like everybody is just on the edge of their seats. And after hearing it all, the judge leaves the court to consider his sentence. Um, he went out and then he came back in and said, right, everyone stand up or Matthew stand up. Judge Stephen Everett starts to speak. Oh my God. Like obviously burst into tears. I was gobsmacked. And he delivers his sentence. I thought he was going to get like a few months. But he didn't. Matthew got years. But the judge here comes back and passes on nine years. Nine years in prison. The longest sentence given to a cyber stalker in a UK court. 
The judge also said that it's important for him to emphasize that he is satisfied that he has the mental health conditions, but that those mental health issues did not stop him from understanding his actions. He concluded saying, they had done nothing to harm you. Most, if not all, did not know who you are. You sat there in your room, wherever you were, and you deliberately sent those spiteful messages. It's difficult to imagine the fear and shock and worry that you caused to your victims and their families. It will probably affect them for the rest of their lives. The victims uh, of this case should be thankful for coming forward to us and giving us the opportunity to allow their accounts to be heard in court. And the judge today has already said in different guises, this is a horrendous campaign for them. The anxiety, the stress, the mistrust around family members and partners was unbelievable to them. And I think, again, the nine-year sentence proves that the judge has listened to those accounts. At this point, Matthew is taken into custody, and he was told that he is going to serve a minimum of four and a half years behind bars, meaning that he could be out by 2025. So, from this point on, the point of sentencing, there are a couple of things that the victims of these crimes pointed out that need changing. The victims have called the police forces to take stalking seriously, to actually understand the impact that it does to people, because they said, like, one police officer, what, per region, per hundred plus reports, is unsustainable. Why was this police report, like, that all of them have filed just on the desk of somebody and they did nothing? Why do we have to wait for something to happen? But then there is something tech-wise that really can be done. And this is something that I find so baffling. Today, even, like, with any social media platform I'm on, and I try to remove myself from so many, but with any, like, you see kids on them, you see somebody just faking, inventing a date of birth, doing the basic math of, like, oh, when was I born to fit this, like, age criteria? That's pretty much it, because nobody asks you to prove your identity. And recently, I dealt with HMRC, which, like, pain in the arse, but still, something that I have found on the website was like, it's so easy. It's so easy to embed it. HMRC asked me to take a picture of myself, so like a selfie, and then a picture of your passport, and then it compares the two. Cool. Takes it, and off you go. It literally takes not even 60 seconds for you to do that. You have proven your identity, and off you go. Why do the social media platforms, from Facebook, Meta, whatever it's called now, to Instagram, TikTok accounts, they're children. They're children everywhere. Like, that's the part that, like, pisses me off, but from the safety point of view, right? It's so easy. It's so, so easy to do it, to embed it, but just social media platforms don't want to, and they don't want to because they care about the numbers. They care about the user's numbers, and you can't really convince me otherwise. They care about whom, you know, has the most users, even though they're sometimes bots most of the times. They're bots or duplicate accounts. So here, they have actually been social media platforms, they have responded. So Meta, the trans Instagram and WhatsApp said that accounts that impersonate someone else are against our rules. We remove, we remove them when brought to our attention. So again, if nobody brings it to our attention, then that takes investigation and you don't even know the outcome sometimes. They have also said that they have... Um, provided, like, basically the data to the police officers when asked. Again, that takes forever. Just, like, let's do things in a non-retroactive way, in proactive way. 
if you wish. Let's just something, embed something, because the internet wasn't invented yesterday, the first WW was not created yesterday, it's very easy to embed it, as somebody who worked in customer service, like, very easy. Super easy to be done, super smooth experience, and then you just don't have these issues, because somebody had proven their identity, and then when it lands on the police desk, they know exactly who it is, and they can take action. They do need to take action, but according to Susie Lemplu's website, also police needs to take it seriously, and they also need to work with the platforms. Because if platforms had worked together to identify this pattern of behavior across multiple accounts, reporting incidents of abuse would have been an effective way of tackling these crimes. And according to... This is from Susie Lemplu's website. This is like a proposal for the tighter laws surrounding stalking. And they would say that one force alone, as I mentioned when the classmates started reporting Cheshire Constabulary, was contacted about hardly more than 100 times by 62 victims over an 11-year period. During his years of stalking, he was arrested 10 times, but the police and the CPS appeared unable to put a stop to his offending. So where is this now? It's so frustrating how easy some of these solutions seem. Like, do your job if you're a police officer, otherwise don't become a police officer. Maybe it seems common sense. Like, I didn't study to become a doctor because I have no interest in that, but then I'm not a doctor. You get what I mean? Cool. And also, like, just some sort of security online towards cyber crimes as if, like, internet had been here for a while. Cool. So, Matthew is in jail, right? He might be or might not be out by 2025. And then comes this headline from a Guardian article in October 2022. Jail term reduced by a year from original sentencing at Chester Crown Court from nine to eight years. On Wednesday, three judges sitting in the Court of Appeal reduced the sentence to eight years, after agreeing the starting point in the original sentence was too high. From what I see, Sarah, the defense lawyer, had uh, appeared in court, so she had been his appeal lawyer as well. And she had said, when one considers the developmental disorder of the appellant, the sentence is manifestly excessive. She uses big words, okay? She said he got too many years and they should cut those down. Based off of, yes, the autism. But here, and this is for the first time that I have found this in search of so many articles, beyond autism, they mention Asperger's. And Asperger's, yes, is part of the autistic spectrum. However, here is the first time that I have heard about this. So, I don't know if they have found the diagnosis that his mom mentions in the podcast, and they just haven't really explained it to us properly. So, let me try to explain based off of what evidence they have reduced the sentence by a year. A different judge here said that Matthew had suffered from Asperger's and autism, and this was clear and well-documented. So, this led him to suffer the lack of empathy, such that he was not always able to understand the impact that his behavior would have on others. 
And because of that, they reduced the term that they had had in mind by 25% to allow for that mental disorder. So Asperger's, as I mentioned, forms the part of the autistic spectrum. And it is usually displayed by repetitive patterns of behavior, hence probably why the experts have said that the fixation might happen. Preoccupation with restricted interests and difficulties with social interactions. I gave you some stats before. Autism appears in 1 in 100, Asperger's in 1 in 250. So that means Asperger's affects 37.2 million people globally, about 0.5% of the population. Just pointing that out yet again, because the numbers are large and you don't usually hear about it in the court of law, and you don't usually get sentences reduced based off of that. The judges here refused Sarah Hake's defense lawyer's argument, saying that they accept the conduct was clearly intended, planned, and premeditated. That this offending clearly had a profound effect on many others than the complainants. And the learned judge was perfectly right to take that into the account. They rejected Sarah Hake's submission that his crimes should not be placed in the top bracket for culpability because of his mental conditions, but they accepted that the sentence overall was too high and reduced it to eight years. So, Matthew Hardy is in prison now, according to the lovely episode 5 and his mom's interview. His mom, Donna, doesn't think that he's getting any further support in there for mental health issues, whether it is autism, whether it is behavior, stalking, right? So that he doesn't come out and re-offend. She said that he had not seen any caseworker. There's no <clears throat> psychological intervention going on. He's just there in gen pop, right? He's in general population. There's nothing special happening. He doesn't see a therapist. He doesn't get any help for any of his issues. She again sees it from the perspective of her son being a victim, while the journalist and some of us, say most of us, are seeing this in the can we please get him some help so he doesn't continue doing the same thing when he's out. Out of everything we have spoken about, there is one thing that stood out to me that I have heard of Matthew Hardy. Once he was taken for police questioning in 2019, the first thing he did once he got out of the police station was to get a new phone. He was back at it again the first chance he got. If we were speaking of a serial killer today, they would have been charges for each and every one of their offenses. Why do the same rules not apply when it comes to the charges of rape or stalking? I would love to be proven wrong, with Matthew Hardy leaving the prison after having served the full term of his sentence, never offending again. But if the views towards the victims of the cyber-stalking crimes don't shift by that point, the laws certainly won't meaning women will be left with the exact same issue they faced in 2011 with the rise of social media. Left with the laws that did not change much since 1997. It offers a bleak future. Hardy is now known to the police. If he re-offends, they will know his name. The next victim of a cyberstalker whose face is unknown might not have that luck. And that is the case of Matthew Hardy. I like to get your circulation flowing, right? First case of the year, but boiling. 
ready to fucking fight. If somebody, because I like to live with some actionable things, if somebody knows how we can get laws changed, I don't know how we can get laws surrounding cyber stalking, stalking in general change, like is there a petition online? Can we do anything so that this man and so many other men and some of them that I have covered on this channel don't come out and re-offend again? Can we change what happens with side of the prison, like inside of the prison walls, with rehabilitation, with getting these people out in such a way where they have received some therapy, some counseling, have a caseworker sign, somebody that makes sure that, again, they don't go and re-offend? Please let me know. If there is a way out there, let us know. I'll pin it. I'll pin the comment. I'll share any sort of resources that you guys might have. I'll share Susie Lampler's website below. I have shared when I covered her case. But obviously, their family and everybody involved in the organization is working to prevent further stalking and like just trying to make the laws around it tighter, like make it more modernized. I don't even know how to say it. Like you have seen what I have displayed during this video. It's all as if genuinely it's all happening in 1997 when it's not. Technology didn't catch up, laws didn't catch up. It's frustrating as hell. So if anybody knows any actionable points, let us know in the comments and I'll share. We share the knowledge, we improve the share, okay? I shall now retire to my chambers, however, to edit this video and then publish. You know how it goes. Research, then record, then edit, then publish. Cool. Got it. You say your chambers. You literally live here. <laughs> this, is, this is where I spend 90% of my time. And that's not like, ooh, a sexual innuendo. Like, yeah, fucking gear constantly. No, it's not. It's really not. I just lie down. I work from there because this looks presentable in meetings. There's so many people that have been deceived by this wallpaper. What the fuck? Look at it. I can't tape it properly. Like, it's not taped even properly. Anyways, I'm not blaming it on you. You just buy into the dream. This is a bookshop. Yes, this is actual books. <laughs> gonna fall any second on me. Uh, but yeah, I'm retiring to these chambers where I spend most of my days. This is not... This is not a sign for help. Blink for help. This is not it. This is not it. And I will hopefully release this for you in a day or two. Yay! Leave in the comment section below all of the answers to all the questions that I have asked throughout this video from your Spotify go-to when you're cheating and when you're listening to Lonely Island to how we change the world. I don't ask for much. I ask for everything at all times and will not settle for anything else. All right, this sounds like a friend. Maya out, Maya out. I will see you guys in about 10 days or so. You know how it goes, you know how it goes. We're back, we're back. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Maya out. Bye.